Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. Today's episode features harpist Aira Lynn Jones. We hope you enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Soundweavers Podcast. My name is Dr. Rosanna Moore. I am your hopping host as ever. And today my wonderful co-host and partner in crime is Dr. Adam Paul Cordell, who is also our incredible producer. Hello, Adam. How are you, my dear? Hi, Rosie. I'm doing well. Let's just introduce this incredible guest for today. Uh, This is a guest I am incredibly excited about because she was actually my teacher Uh, both at Cheatham School of Music and then the Royal Northern College of Music. She has known me since I was nine years old and has just had the most incredible and diverse career that any musician would be very fortunate to have. So without further ado, hello, Erin Lynn Jones. How are you? Hello, Rosie Moore. Thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this amazing series. Era, I'd like to um, just ask you to talk a little bit about some of the chamber music projects that you've been currently working on. Um, I know that you've been working with a number of ensembles, and I think it'd be really interesting to just hear about the diversity of the work that you do. Yes, well, I'm I'm a professional harpist based in Manchester, um, in the northwest of uh, England, and I have a career as a, a teacher. I teach at the Royal Northern College of Music in Manchester and uh, as a performer. My uh, a bulk of my work is with orchestras, but I've always loved chamber music. This has come about from my very early studies. I did my master's at the Manhattan School of Music in New York, and I met a fabulous flautist there called Janet Axelrod. A big shout out to her, I hope she's listening. <laughs> and um, it was a time when I, I I don't think there was a chamber music elective um, and we just got together because we just really wanted to explore that repertoire to to work together and this has become a very important part of my life ever since. Um, At the moment I have a duo called the Juniper Project. It is also a flute and harp duo. It's actually my fourth significant flute and harp duo. You know, duos change over a long period of time. My first one with Janet was exploring the repertoire. My second one was uh, developing concerts and education work. My third one was the Aeolian duo, which is the one you probably know that I had for many, many years with um, David Sambler. And this is when we also explored arranging music for this combination. Um, this was in the 90s when it was more difficult to find music online. 
So we, we started arranging and publishing arrangements for other groups. And um, so that's been a, an important sideline of, of doing chamber music. So it's not only playing, but also having a business on the side, which I think is, is very important these days. And definitely that has sustained me over the years. So you can find many of our arrangements on my website shop. A bit of a, a plug there, I know. But um, yeah, so, so with, um, with the Juniper Project, I work with a Greek flautist called Anna Rosa Mari. One of the reasons we got together was that Anna was very interested in finding someone who would explore the contemporary side, um, com- contemporary music, but also original works for flute and harp. I remember a few years ago going to concerts um, by a very well-known duo, and the entire programme was made up of pieces for harp and piano with a poor harpist oh, just you know having to cope with that so i really pulled away from doing too many arrangements or, or difficult flute pieces and being a pianist but having to do it on on the harp so we we started this duo and we released a, a cd under the um, divine arts label it's called fragments because it's a taster of uh, the re- unusual repertoire for this combination including um, a lovely set of pieces by the French composer Bernard Andres called Algues. Now, these are fairly straightforward, beautiful, miniature pieces. I often use them in teaching my um, young students, and we thought it was very important to show that um, that we enjoyed playing the slightly easier in- intermediate repertoire and I hope it encourages more younger groups to you know do more chamber music. Obviously doing this Juniper project is an incredibly important um, part of my life but as a freelance musician I am often asked to be a guest in other groups. Yes. <laughs> it was the last recording project I did was in January and this was with the bassoonist Lawrence Perkins, uh, a very passionate um, promoter of the bassoon in the UK, if not worldwide. So I was asked to um, come along and record a piece by um, Arnold Bax. It's called uh, Threnody and Scherzo. It's for bassoon, harp and string sextet. These recording projects have, you know, not have a, they don't have a big budget. And in fact, Lawrence uh, funded this project um, himself. So there's no rehearsal beforehand. You literally turn up for the session and your first note is with the the red lights on. So it's a very different way of of playing. You have to really fit in immediately with a group of people that you've never met and certainly haven't played with before. Um, So it's, it's thrilling and exhilarating. But for me, chamber music is really about getting to know other people, learning, you know, how they approach piece of music. I just learned so much from it. So I just wanted to hop onto the recording that you recently did. What do you think the differences are in working with an ensemble, in your case, flute and harp duos, uh, that you've cultivated a relationship with as opposed to something more unusual where 
uh, you're just asked to go in because they need a harpist for a session or for a recital. I, what do you think the differences are uh, as as you approach that? Joining another ensemble to do a, a project is a little bit like maybe joining a chamber orchestra. You're there to do a job. There isn't so much of a connection. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you do your job and then you leave and you've, ha- you've had no input. You've had no input in the programme, the choice um, of pieces or te- tempo, you just have to fit yeah. in. Um, but that's, you know, that's a skill to turn up on that first rehearsal, absolutely knowing it inside out and being flexible enough and experienced enough to do it. And actually, I don't know if I could have done a project like the bassoon recording if I hadn't had these four other, you know, experiences with groups of, of adapting to different flautists mm-hmm. and, you know, having that range of um, experiences because each group, you know, we have followed different paths and they've all sort of naturally come to an end for, you know, not for bad reasons, just because we felt that was the end of a project and we've moved on. And uh, on, on neither occasion have I actively tried to find another group. It's, they've just come to me. So it's, it's, it seems, it's, it seems my path really. Um, so with the bassoon project, I'd worked with Lawrence for a long, long time. And we'd, you know, we'd have our solos in the orchestra and um, we'd always wanted to do something together. So that was quite special because, you know, I'd known about this for about a year or so. I knew that he wanted me to do it. That was, you know, special, but I then had to really adapt to playing with strings I'd never, some of them I'd never even met before. (laughs) That is, you know, that, that is a challenge. There was a string quartet, the Carducci string quartet. You know, they're a tight-knit group. And then me coming in at the last minute to blend as much as possible. But I think, you know, I would recommend to any young musician out there listening is the more that you get to play with other people, the more it helps the future because you never know when you might get that call. Um, and, and you've already banked all that experience. Actually, I mean, one of the things that I'm interested in in knowing about is that you talk about contemporary music and your interest in uh, contemporary music. And I just wonder what brought you into um, exploring contemporary music in the first place. Okay, this is, a, this is a great question. So I was a student at the RNCM and I was just put in a contemporary music group for the first time. During that time, we would have a few days to rehearse and then it would be perform. So I remember being in that orchestra and thinking, wow, I have no idea what <laughs> is going on. And I didn't understand the language, but I knew that it was a language that I wanted to learn. So fast forward six months, I found myself in New York City. I had to choose electives. One of the electives was contemporary music ensemble. So I turned up uh, to the registration and said, hi, I want to, I'd like to take this elective and they said which instruments are you I said I'm a harpist and everybody stopped and said wow who sent you (laughs) um and so I had no idea I was terrified and prepare so I I was up nearly all night trying to you know get it note perfect for the first rehearsal which I did do I knew it inside out and I, I learned that's the way to approach contemporary music to kind of you know, make sure you understand every aspect of it. Now, my sadness is that even now, when orchestras or groups do contemporary music pieces, you know, really difficult ones, there's not enough rehearsal time. No. 
and a lot of students, even professionals, just shy away from it because they just don't have time to rehearse. And I think with new, you know, first performances, new music, we need to have more time on that than a Beethoven symphony that they might have done, you know, several times oh, absolutely. before. If we can understand, as musicians can understand the piece ourselves, we can actually transmit that understanding to an audience and then they're more likely to, to uh, approach uh, another concert with a, a new composers. I'm hoping that might change now. I don't know why I think that, but I, I hope with more emphasis on having to rethink the way classical concerts are put on, that new music will have a much greater emphasis. Yeah, so one of the things that um, I'm particularly interested in is um, the work that you do with music and hospitals. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about um, what that program is um, and how that work influences you both as a performer and um, an educator. Oh, how long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, lots of stories here, but uh, music and hospitals. This is a scheme where musicians are sent into hospital settings to perform for patients, outpatients. Um, so the scheme I'm involved with mainly is going into the Manchester Royal Eye Hospital and I play in the atrium there where patients are waiting for appointments, waiting for prescriptions, doctors and nurses are having their breaks, etc. So now there's a, there's a backstory to this. Quite a few years ago, I had a very serious eye uh, problem. I had a detached retina and I had four serious eye operations. So I was actually a patient in the hospital. I sat in that atrium, terrified, fearful, tearful, waiting for my appointments and surgeries. So it was rather ironic that when I was asked to go on the scheme, this is where they sent me. So walking into that atrium as a musician was a very powerful thing because I, although it was, I was very anxious about returning, during my eye operations, I did have to face the fact that I might not be able to continue with my musical career. But it was very empowering that I did actually, you know, get booked to go back as a musician and to be able to play in front of um, patients and sometimes share stories with them of my own experiences. So basically, um, there are three, uh, three mornings a week um, this organisation sends musicians to perform we play for an hour we do get um, a, you know a small fee for it but most of us really enjoy doing it because we're giving back to the community and I certainly have felt that what's been quite humbling for me is that it made me realize that you could what a difference you can make with your music just sitting there quietly playing because you see the difference it makes to people. It relaxes them and they come up to you and say, you've really calmed me down before my appointments. The other side of the coin is that there was one day um, a couple had just come out of the, the baby units, which is adjacent to the eye hospital. And they were standing there with their arms around each other, very tearful. And they'd stopped to listen to me play. I was playing 
Bruce's arabesque. I didn't see this. My husband saw this happening. But they were obviously very distressed. They stopped to listen to the Debussy. And he said in that moment, he saw the transformation in them, that there was that, you know, through few minutes of, of healing and they had that um, calmness around them. So, so he, he was very affected by that. Equally, there's another side to the story in that you arrive and, you know, I've got this big instrument, I unpack, um, there's a gentleman sitting there on his phone and I'm unpacking and I'm starting to tune and I'm thinking, well, surely he's going to look up in a minute and notice there's a big instrument right in front of him. <laughs> so I start tuning very quietly. I don't want to disturb him. I don't want to frighten him. And there's no, no reaction at whatsoever. And eventually I start playing and then I play louder because I really want a reaction now. And eventually he looks up and he gets up and walks away. And it kind of made me think, yeah, I'm not that special. To some people, it makes no difference. Yeah. So that's quite humbling because you think, okay, I, I, think, I think I'm special with this harp and doing my music. But for some people, it doesn't, doesn't reach them. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's a healing process for me. And I know a lot of other musicians think that. You have this hour and you, you come away and it's made a significant difference to your well-being. I, I love music in hospitals and there, there is a similar scheme in the UK called Life Music Now, which um, does a so it sort of has a similar uh, outreach aspect where they take music into places where you wouldn't necessarily expect it. I, I wish that this was a thing in the US. They're starting to do something with Eastman and the performance in medicine, um, which is heralded by Galen McCormack. She's brilliant, but it's I this needs to be more of a thing in the US than it is at the moment. So I would like to go back to a bit more of a pedagogical question and talk about your work with the RNCM and in particular with the Harp Ensemble. Now, I, I am a little biased because I did study with you and uh, also I was part of this ensemble for many years, but it is a jewel of the conservatoire. Could you tell us why this aspect is so important to you as a teacher? And also how does the pre-collegiate version of this, for want of a better term, Young Harps, uh, influence your work at the collegiate level? I've been teaching at the RNCM for over 20 years now. I wanted to give my students opportunities that I hadn't had myself. And I knew that, um, you know, playing in ensembles is, is so important. You know, harpists start playing the harp maybe when they're nine, ten years old. It's a challenging instrument. <laughs> they usually start on the lever harp and then progress to the pedal harp three or four years later. By this time, yes, youth orchestras are around, but orchestral harp parts are incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. So often harpists are put off by um, playing in orchestras. It, it's just too much too soon say the violinist would start when they were nine within months if not weeks you'd be in a little string group then string orchestra then a string quartet then a symphony orchestra so before you come to music college you've had all these um, experiences of working with people you know, being able to play in time following a conductor <laughs> and I was finding the harpist just did would come and would be able to play the harp well but I hadn't had this so of course, they would have this experience with uh, um, our, our orchestral program. It's a fabulous program, as I'm sure Rosie will tell you. But they needed more than that. So that was the first reason I wanted to 
get them all to work together. Um, the other reason is that very often harpists are the only harpists in a school when they're learning, the only harpists in the orchestra. We have this big instrument, we play our cadenzas, and I think it's really, really important the harpists learn to work together. So it's, you know, they get a chance to lead, they take it in turns to lead, they take it in turns to be harp six or harp 20, if I have got a group of 20 harpists. So it's just, um, yeah, it's, it's another skill. And, and working together over the years is, is incredibly important because when you leave, you, if you're lucky, you'll get a call to play second harp with an orchestra and you need to learn to deal with a difficult principal. Hopefully you've had that experience. You know how to behave. Uh, you know how to adapt. You know how to, to, bl to blend with somebody who's a very different player to you. So all these skills, you know, come into play with our, with our ensemble. We also wanted to show that the harp wasn't just a solo instrument. So hence taking in part in lots of external projects. We've also taken the harp out into the community mm -hmm. and taking a group of players is sort of more attractive in a way when I am pitching for uh, projects. Taking the harp out into the community with a group of enthusiastic, you know, young players. And I don't know if you remember, um, Rosie, but I always used to, you know, get you all to think of fun outfits. Yes. I, I found a photo recently of you all wearing different coloured t-shirts from Primark I don't know if you remember I, I and I know you also gave us little jobs to do as well which I'm I'm sure when we were undergrads we hated it but it's so important it's like okay you're gonna do the social media stuff you're gonna do the poster you're going to run this rehearsal and that is so mm. important and I make my students do that now and I'm sure they hate me for it <laughs> but it's it's something that I hope they look back on afterwards and go oh no that was that was really useful regardless of whether they mm. go into music or if they decide to um go down another avenue for their careers. Yeah, I definitely ha hand over responsibilities to them. Like, you know, thinking about the staging. Yes. Uh, thinking about introductions. Thinking about, you know, how to move the harps between pieces. You know, we've got that down to fine art. <laughs> um, how to choose programs. Sometimes they get an opportunity to choose an entire program. We did, for the first time we, we we went down to London last year to do the Salvi showcase and, you know, put on our usual diverse programme of interesting, we think interesting music from jazz to folk to contemporary to classical. And they told me, and, you know, I, I don't like blowing my own tr trumpet too often, but, but it was one of the <laughs> best showcases that they'd ever had. So, and I was really proud of my students because it's, it's taken a long time to get it to this point mm -hmm. where they can, um, I don't have to tell them to do everything anymore. They, the, the, the older ones will coach the young ones on how to run the ensemble. For years, we've been putting on different staging, you know, always introducing our pieces. It's not new for us. Mm -hmm. It's never been I always laugh when people think this is so new, but it's never been new, new to us. We've always experimented with having harps, you know, dotted in different places across the stage, 
um, at Chet's, I remember doing a concert there and I started off stage with the harp concert. That's brilliant. It was a harp off stage. And yeah, so it's it all, all these skills. It's, it's not just a harp ensemble. It, it's life skills, it's concert skills. Life skills of dealing with difficult colleagues. <laughs> um, life skills of uh, dealing with audiences, you know, and having to introduce. So, yeah. So um, how does that translate to Young Harps or the other way around? Well, I think it's probably that because I'd had this taste of what a difference the senior college ensemble made, that when I was asked if I would direct the Young Harps project or the RNCM, um, I jumped at it. So what this is, is an outreach project. Um, young harpists under the age of 18 come together twice a term on a Sunday morning from 10 to 1. They usually have to bring a harp and we have guest tutors. I direct it. They don't know what, what might happen. We might have announced who is the guest, but they come with a lot of faith that they won't be you know, asked to do anything they'll not be comfortable doing. It could be a folk musician, teach them a tune by ear. It could be a composer working on a graphic score. It might be pop arranging, might be just classical harp ensemble. We don't often do technique sessions because we don't want to interfere with what they're already doing with their own teachers. But um, the emphasis is on ensemble and it's on teamwork. And often these young players have never played in a group before. They're the only harpist in their school. We, we get people coming, you know, from 100 miles away. Our radius is 100 miles. It's all free. It's fully funded. Um, so they get this opportunity. And I started with nine registered three years ago. And now we have a pool of about 24. Oh, that's they don't incredible. all come wow. you know, every time. Yeah. But often we hit the 18, at least 18, 19 will come um, um, every time. So it, yeah, it's a great project. Um, my students who are in the Harpensemble group have the option of sitting in and being volunteers and mentors to the young students. We're very careful that they don't you know, interfere too much. There could be a student who doesn't want anybody sitting beside them and they have to learn to um, adapt to that and you know, see who, who needs the help. Mm -hmm. All my students come every time, which is absolutely fantastic. I'm you know, very, very proud of my students for doing this because they work very hard and having to give up a, another Sunday to come and do one of my crazy projects is, is not easy, especially when they have to arrive for eight o'clock in the morning to set up two studios <laughs> and everything else. We have to do everything from setting up the registration desk to sorting out refreshments table, tuning all the harps, setting up the harps, setting up the rooms. So yeah, they, so they all come and they, they help if uh, the young pupils need that. Um, what's been interesting is that I've watched people arrive for the first session being very, very anxious, not knowing what to expect. And then fast forward, you know, four or five sessions later and they, they skip in and they're so happy to be there to see people. Um, you see how their confidence develops. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it's just great. What is interesting though, to go back to 
pedagogy, you mentioned pedagogy, is that the students are exposed to all kinds of, of young players. So from, you know, their student days, they are aware that there are pupils who might only get a 10 minute lesson per week. And that does happen in a lot of schools with per mm -hmm. peripatetic teaching. So once they get 20 minutes, if they're really lucky. Yeah. Uh, others get private lessons an hour a week. Well, that's great. But they're all in it together. And we have to pull the team together because at the end of the morning, we do a presentation for the parents. So they see different tutors work with the group and they see that there has to be an end result mm -hmm. and how the, the players cope with that. They always cope amazingly. Occasionally we will have a tutor who can't cope with it at all oh, no. because it's one thing coming in with advanced students who are very good in a masterclass or workshop situation. It's quite another having a group of mixed ability with some people being able to read music very well and some people not having a clue on how to read, but loving the harp and can play by ear and can improvise. So that's been interesting for the students to watch, you know, a range of, of tutors. And we literally have had people like um, Tara Minton, mm -hmm. um, jazz um, singer, a songwriter, and harpist, uh, Katrina Mackay uh, and Rachel Hare, both amazing Scottish uh, folk players, to um, Rachel Gladwin, who's uh, in, in the Manchester scene doing lots of session work. Isabel Miras, she's artistic director of the Edinburgh International Harp Festival. She came and did a workshop and her first group was a group of pedal harpists, which she had never Oh, before. She, I don't think she'd ever done that. She <laughs> brought them a fantastic tune. Um, I, I, Adam will probably not know Isabel, but she she turned 80 this year. And wow. watching her teach was a masterclass in how to teach a mixed ability group. Oh, uh, and it was one of the most, it's one of, been one of the highlights of this year. And having, you know, an 80-year-old travel all the way to be, because she's also passionate, passionate about um, passing on her amazing um, life experiences. It feeds everybody, it feeds me, it feeds my soul. It helps <laughs> the young musicians who get this experience they don't get in their normal lives. And it's part of the student's learning experience. So it's very valuable. And I really hope it continues next year. So let's see what happens, yeah. So we're going to ask one or two more questions in more of the kind of life skills advice uh, section. And I'm just going to preface this by something that I heard you say in an interview recently that you did everything backwards in your career. You started off with the full-time orchestral position and you are now a full-time freelancer that does a little bit of everything. Can you talk a bit about how this has affected your work ethic and also how do you balance everything how do you do everything <laughs> yeah so obviously i came back from the usa and I, I did freelance for a few years but you know everybody's goal at that time was to get a job you had to get a job to be to have the security which is okay great but also to be validated and i, I was very aware of that 
that's still a thing <laughs> yeah it, it is still a thing and, it, and it, it is that's if that's what people want that's great and I had I think it was eight years in the orchestra and I learned so much and I really enjoyed every minute of it but I did realize that uh you know my late 20s early 30s that I had a choice and that I could either stay in the you know contract world or maybe there was there were other things that I would like to do I was thinking about this the other day and you know I left that job I resigned much to the shock of a lot of people because it was you know fairly nice job to have and not too demanding we would do three or four ballets a season if that and you know it, it, it was great once you learned your part off you went um i didn't have anything else to go to so it was a really shocking move to many people that i didn't have anything else and i didn't know what my plan was i've never really had a plan except maybe i do i'll, I'll come back to that <laughs> yeah my, my plan is freedom so i've always wanted to have the freedom as a musician to do what I want to do. I obviously have to accept some contract jobs <laughs> to pay the bills, but I've always liked the fact that, you know, especially at this stage in my life, I have a choice whether I want to accept something. And also when I was ill and, so I was ill for, you know, a good 18 months. When I realized I could go back to playing, I made a conscious decision that if I was gonna accept something that I possibly didn't want to do, but it, I needed, you know, that money for that time, that I would accept it and give it everything I had and, and not, you know, get frustrated by the fact that I didn't want to do it. And that, that's a good, <laughs> that's a good lesson for people. And because I had this attitude, it, you know, it, um, something great would always come out of that, mm -hmm. which made me really think, oh, I'm glad I accepted that because I met this person or, get, or get, get out, got asked to do this project. You know, other things came in my Free, my freelance life developed a lot. Um, I, I had the freedom to accept things now that I wasn't able to accept before. I could do more teaching. I always knew that was really important in my life. And, and when you're on the road touring, it's, it's far more difficult to mm -hmm. develop your teaching. Um, I was a teacher at Cheatham School of Music, where I... Um, not where I first met Rosie, but where you, you did come. There you to taught study. me for many moons, many, many Indeed. moons. Yes. <laughs> and after, I think it was 10 years there, I made the decision to leave. I had a, a big studio um, of 11 harpists and um, a very nice, you know, very nice way of life, very nice um, money, <laughs> lots of opportunities. But I felt I wanted to do other things again i didn't know what but i wanted to see what else would would come out of that and a lot more chamber music came came that came my way i had more time to sit down and start writing even though that wasn't really in the plan i realized i really enjoyed writing some um, pieces for my my pupils i started writing technical booklets um, pick and mix Technique exercises are going really well at the moment and available to download uh, from Harp Column or my website. <laughs> and I, I was free to do more workshops. 
sometimes I was offered projects that maybe weren't financially making much sense to my accountants, but I would take them on board because it was something that would interest me. And then suddenly this project, which didn't have very much money, would totally blossom into something quite amazing. And one example was being asked to come to South Africa last year. You know, a tentative invitation. Could you come? Maybe. And I ended up going there, treating it like a holiday, but I ended up um, doing concerts, workshops, lessons, adjudicating at a festival and having the best life experience ever. So if I'd been in a contract job, there's no way I would have been able to take that. So, and then another sense of freedom was when I did my latest album, um, I've been asked to do lots of recordings over the years and you're always, if, you, if you're with a recording company, you're, you're tied to what they want you to do. So my latest album was very much uh, pieces that I wanted to uh, show the world. I wanted to record pieces that my students were playing, not the hardest pieces in the world. Commission, I commissioned new pieces. I made sure there was a performance of them so there'd be a record for the future. One of the pieces developed um, sadly as a result of a very good friend and former student of mine, the Scottish harpist Helen McLeod. She sadly died in a car accident two years ago. I had already commissioned Esther to write a piece. And when Helen died, I said, right, this piece has to be as a tribute to, to Helen. Mm-hmm. And it's called Time Spinner. And I know, Rosie, you've, you have played that. Um, and this became, the whole album then turned into a, a, a project where I really opened my mind and said, look, you know, this is not commercial venture. This is a tribute to an amazing young lady who was taken far too soon at the age of 37. And my approach to what I chose to do on that recording changed completely. It, yeah, it's opened another door for me not to be afraid. So yeah, freedom is why I haven't followed the usual path. Yeah, so I recommend it. Just for you to know, and I'm, I'm being honest here, I have a few lessons booked in over the summer. Um, I will recommence my teaching late September, but I have absolutely nothing in my diary, no performances in my diary for the rest of the year. So when I realized that, I was waiting for the fear and the anxiety to kick in. And I thought, it's okay, this is part of the freedom. I have this freedom. I don't know what's going to happen. Check back in six months and we'll find out. But um, I just thought, no, I'm, I'm going to embrace this. And I think if musicians at this time can embrace the fact that the world is changing rather dramatically for, for musicians, something amazing can come out of it. I am absolutely convinced this is not the end. This is just a pause and it's a time maybe for musicians to rethink and yeah, develop. And I'm, I'm quite excited about it. If anybody's listening and worried about the future, don't be, just keep doing what you wanna do. Have the passion to do it. Don't be afraid of what people will think. Just do it anyway, if you can. You know, respect yourself, respect others, respect the music, and it's gonna, it's, it's gonna be fine. You know, I wanted to just ask you to, to talk to us a little bit about what role you believe the arts should 
be playing in society, especially given um, the inequalities that we're experiencing. Um, I mean, certainly uh, economic inequalities abound, the racial inequalities abound. Um, so I just, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on, um, on that. It's a, it's a really good, but vast question. It's the should that got me. <laughs> what role should the arts mm -hmm. be playing? For me and for you, it's, it's, it's probably obvious. It's, you know, during lockdown, what did people do? They ran to the arts, the, you know, music, films, you know, theatre, everybody wanted that engagement, didn't they? And, and why do they run to that? So I think it's got a very powerful healing aspect to our lives. All my work with the music and hospitals have, has, has shown me that. I think it brings communities together. In the UK, um, we had Thursday night clapping for the NHS and the theme tune was somewhere over the rainbow. I don't know if you picked up on that, but lo lots of people were playing that tune mm -hmm. a lot. And it was quite phenomenal, really, um, how maybe people who hadn't thought that they enjoyed music in any way were actively, you know, learning the tune, playing it on a xylophone or playing it on the piano or arranging it for their, their family. And yeah, it was, it was quite emotional and powerful. It needs to be recognized with um, the governments uh, in the UK. Sadly, musicians are not getting, as freelance musicians anyway, yeah, most freelance musicians aren't getting any government aid at all. And this is very worrying because I think we're going to lose some fabulous um, players. But also, I've got three nephews who you know love music. They're sport mad as well, but they, they love their music. It's a really important part of their lives. And my worry is that we're because they're not going to get the opportunities coming up if we're not funded better, if music isn't appreciated more, that we're going to lose a whole generation. Of musicians and I think that's gonna have you know massive consequences I just can't imagine life without music imagine watching a Harry Potter film or a Star Wars f film without music I mean come on you know it's so obvious to me that music enriches our lives so I just feel we should be supported more how that's gonna happen I don't know but let's see if as musicians we can really unite together and, and keep music alive. I'm going to wrap this up. Uh, all of your social media handles and your website, Ada, will be down in the show notes. So everybody, please, please check out this incredible musician. And I just thank you so much for such a wonderful conversation. We, we really appreciate having you here today. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soundweavers podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and most other major podcast platforms. We hope that you'll visit us at www.soundweaverscast.com, 
Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at SoundweaversCast and on Twitter at SWChambercast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is hosted by Rosanna Moore and engineered by Blair Kerner. I'm your producer, Adam Paul Cordell. Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweavers team. The music you heard in today's podcast was composed by Aralyn Jones and performed by the Juniper Project. On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, see you in two weeks. <laughs>